All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the last theological equipping of the semester. Crazy. Um, So it is good to be with you here on June 25th. Our final biblical theme, we will consider the theme of holiness. Let me pray, uh, and then we'll begin our time and, and dive into this theme. Father, we come to you, the one who is holy beyond all imagination, who is perfect in all your ways. And we just pray now as we study you, God, that this would not be a a mere intellectual exercise where we fill our minds with some interesting tidbits, some knowledge that maybe we elevate ourselves with or we just find to be compelling or just interesting, but Father, I pray this would be an exercise in worship. And as we study the thrice holy God, we would be amazed at you, that we would not be satisfied with our sin, that we would be compelled forward into righteousness and godliness, and that you would use this to help us understand more of who you are and who you have made us to be in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as I said, this is our final class this semester uh, studying these biblical themes, and today we are studying the theme of holiness. Now, hopefully, throughout this semester, uh, as, we've, as we've traced each of these unique threads through the Bible, you've come to appreciate more and more how Jesus is the center of every biblical story, how Jesus is the center of every narrative, every theme the Bible has, and hopefully you've understood more of uh, how we ought to respond to that glorious reality. We've seen how the, the story of the Bible is a story of beauty. It's a story about food, about covenants and kingdoms, of authority and submission, of sacrifice. And each of those has, as I said, showed us how Jesus is the center of everything, but hopefully also in its own way. It's, it's filled out your understanding of the Bible. It's, it's one of our desires this semester uh, is to just help you understand the unity of the Scriptures. That when you open your Bible to books that maybe are less uh, less familiar, something like Leviticus or Ezekiel. We're going to look at Ezekiel a lot today. Uh, as you open your Bible and you understand, you'll, you'll understand more of what God is doing, what God has said, and how that book contributes to the whole meta narrative of the Bible. And I hope you find that to be the case today too, with our final theme, which is not just a theme. Really, today what we are studying is a central attribute of who God is. Holiness. Holiness, in some ways, could be equated to God's godness. Uh, it, it, is, it is an essential attribute of who God is, and it is an attribute that he imparts to his creation. So just to set up this theme, to see and understand a little bit about the nature of God's holiness, let's start by taking a look at Isaiah chapter 6. This is what Isaiah the prophet records. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. 
With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So here... The prophet has this vision of the throne room of God, and he sees these seraphim flying around the throne. Now, uh, seraphim are angels, uh, but the name itself, I think, is, is instructive. The word ser- seraph means a burning one. So literally, it's just basically saying they're on fire. They're burning ones. Uh, that's what the seraphim are. Seraphim would be the plural. Seraph would be the singular. So these are they're holy angels of God, and they're literally aflame in the presence of God, as they look at God's holiness, but look at this, these holy angels have to hide their faces and their feet from the burning holiness of Yahweh. As they look at God, as they, as they for all eternity, fly around him and sing his praises, they have to hide their faces and their feet from his holiness. They cannot look straight at him. They're, they're burning angels and they are crying, holy, holy, holy is this God. In fact, he's so holy, we can't even look at him and he, we can't let him see our feet. Not because they're sinful, these are angels, but because they're creatures. Because their creatureliness means they cannot look straight at God's majestic holiness. And as I said, they're singing this song. They're singing, holy, holy, holy. They're describing this God who they're praising. And that is the only attribute of God we find in the Bible that is raised to the third degree. So they don't just say God is holy. They say holy, holy, holy. It's the the Hebrew way of speaking in the superlative, the the highest of terms. We kind of do this in our own language too. So I could say You know, summers in Chicago are hot, but summers in Dallas are hot, hot, hot. Right? You all understand what I'm saying. I'm not, it's the same word, but I'm trying to communicate, I'm trying to say that I can't say how hot summers in Dallas are. It's so hot, language fails to communicate. It's hot, hot, hot. In the same way, God is not just holy, he is holy, holy, holy. And that's a problem for Isaiah. That's a big problem because he sees this holy God and he cries out, woe is me, I'm unclean. He just gets this barest glimpse of God's holiness and he is driven to his knees. He is overwhelmed by his own sinfulness. And then something stunning happens. One of the seraphim, one of the burning ones, takes a burning coal from the altar, touches Isaiah's lips with it, And says, your sin is atoned for. Your sin is atoned 
for. It's an amazing story, and really, I think it is a, a microcosm. It's an abridged version of the story, the theme we're going to trace today. So there are three things that we see here, and all of them together communicate kind of this big story we're tracing across the Bible today. The three things are the infinite holiness of God is so clear here. He is holy, holy, holy. We see the terrible sinfulness of man. Isaiah says, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. And I've seen God and I'm in big trouble. And yet we also see thirdly the unbelievable hope of unity. That this holy God and sinful man can be reconciled. There's so much wrapped up in this theme of holiness. We're going to look at a lot today. There's a lot we won't look at that we could look at. Uh, things that are wrapped up with holiness like the, the priestly vestments, like the, some of the structure to the tabernacle and the temple. We'll talk a little bit about that. There's so many details we can get lost in. But just at the beginning, I want you to focus on this main, the, the heart of this story that we're tracing, the infinite holiness of God, the terrible sinfulness of man, and the unbelievable hope of unity, of reconciliation. That's the story we're going to trace this morning. Uh, but before we really do that, we need to quickly define what we're talking about, holiness. What is holiness? Well, uh, in some ways, holiness is actually really hard to define. Uh, it's almost like if you asked me to, to define my wife, I, mean, I couldn't say one thing. If I said one thing, I would, I would be failing to do her justice. You can't you know, capture her with one description. So uh, in the same way, holiness, uh, it's so robust in the Bible, it's so kind of multi-layered that I'm going to give you three elements to the definition. And these three I think anytime holiness is mentioned, these three things are part of it. Uh, one of them, in whatever, depending on the context, one of them will probably be the main focus. Uh, but all three of these together kind of give us this idea of what holiness entails. So the first, the first element of holiness is moral purity. Moral purity. So throughout the Bible, holiness is often equated with righteousness. So God's holiness means he does not sin. He only loves what is right and true. And so sin is the opposite of holiness. It's, it's the counterpoint to this theme. We'll, we'll see that in a little bit. We saw in Isaiah 6 that the prophet sees God's holiness and immediately recognizes his own moral impurity. Woe is me. I'm unclean. I, I'm sinful because he sees what perfect holiness, perfect moral purity looks like. We see in Exodus 19, God calls Israel a holy nation. And then in the next chapter, Exodus 20, he gives them the moral law, the Ten Commandments. He's saying, you're holy, here's how you live holy. So holiness and righteousness are equated. 2 Corinthians 7 makes a similar point. Second element of holiness, it's not just moral purity. Holiness includes a dedicated separation. Now, I, I couldn't figure out a better way to put that. There's like a lot of words I want to use to capture this part. Uh, but holiness carries a sense of otherness, of, of, of being set apart, to be different from what's common. So uh, sometimes there is a moral element to that, right? We're called to be holy. It means we're, we're, not, we're not to live different lives than the you know, rampant sinfulness around us. That's part of it. But, but it's not always moral. 
So sometimes in the Bible, you'll see holiness ascribed to something that is, is dedicated for a purpose, that has a, a particular, uh, yeah, a, 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 it's separated for a particular reason. So a great example of this would be the Sabbath. Exodus uh, chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. The point there is not, you know, days one through six are sinful, day seven, holy. That's not what's going on here. Days one through six are just normal days. Day seven, though, is set apart. It's unique. It has its own purpose. It is dedicated to God in ways, in a way that the other six days are not. Uh, that we see that point also in Leviticus chapter 20. God's telling him, them, his people to be holy, and he's not just talking about don't sin like the nations around you. He's saying you are different. You are set apart. This is part of who you are, is you, are, you have this dedicated separation from the other nations. You are holy. So holiness is moral purity. It's this dedicated separation. Third and finally, probably the least appreciated element of holiness, it is praiseworthy beauty. It is praiseworthy beauty. We see that in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, I won't belabor this, but Hebrew poetry works in parallels. The two halves of the sentence will have usually corresponding parts. And this kind of uh, works from the outside in, or sorry, inside out. So look at the, the two kind of middle things there. The Lord of hosts, talking about angels in heaven. And then the counterpart in the second half of the sentence. The whole earth. So angels and, uh, you know, physical creation. Okay, we got it. And then you move out one more. And the Lord and the Lord, those are equal. And then on the further reaches of the sentence, holy, holy, holy is equated with God's glory. With his glory, his beauty, his worthiness to be Praise. There is an element to holiness that captures God's majesty. Holiness is, is stunning and beautiful. Psalm 96 uses the phrase, the splendor of holiness. The splendor of holiness. Holiness is not like this surgical, cold, like whatever clinical thing. It's, it's all, I think of it almost like fire, which is, I think, why the seraphim are called the burning ones. Because there's a, there's a purity to fire, but there's also this remarkable beauty. Fire is beautiful. I'm, I'm not a pyromaniac, maybe a little bit, um, but you, you get the idea there. If you go back and listen to Tim's uh, theological equipping class on beauty, he talked about uh, how uh, God delights in beauty because he is beauty. So Jesus can't help but make beautiful things. Right When he makes wine at the wedding at Cana, he doesn't just make okay wine, he makes the best wine. It's who he is. We, we sing about this. Holy, 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 all the earth adore thee. We're saying God's holiness means he is worthy to be praised. All thy works shall praise thy name, earth, sky, and sea. So God's glory is, is wrapped up in his holiness. So that's what holiness is. It's something essential to God's being, it, it's about his moral purity, his dedicated separation, his praiseworthy beauty. But it is also something that he, in tremendous grace, has decided to communicate to a people. And we'll trace that story now as it unfolds across 
the Bible, and we'll start with Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And if we, we won't read the whole chapters, obviously, here, but we see all three elements of our definition of holiness in those first two chapters of the Bible. So holiness is moral purity. That's Eden. Adam and Eve are naked and not ashamed. They have nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of because they're free of sin. Eden is set apart. This is something we miss a lot of the time. The Bible's clear. God makes the whole earth. But Eden, Eden has this special purpose, this special dedication. And Adam and Eve are, are kind of supposed to, in a sense, push the boundaries of the garden across the whole earth. But Eden is, it is holy in a unique way. It is set apart. And, of course, it's beautiful. Genesis chapter 2, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So every beautiful tree is in Eden. Just imagine walking among these glorious trees. Every beautiful tree God has ever made is there. And another part of its beauty, another part of Eden's, uh, yeah, Eden's praiseworthiness is its structure. Now, it's kind of hard to put this in just one quote from the scriptures for you, but I've, I've kind of showed you charts. If you've been in theological equipping a lot this semester, you've seen uh, that one of the things the days of creation shows us is God is making a perfectly ordered creation. So days one, two, and three are kind of the, the, the form, the, the kingdoms that God makes, the, you know, the waters and the, the skies and then the waters and then the land. And then days four, five, and six, are they fill each one of those. So there's this, this structure. you got the birds, uh, the sun and moon, and then uh, the, the animals and all these kind of things that, that fill each different one. And so what it's showing us is God doesn't just make a world. God makes a perfectly organized world, a perfectly structured world. World, and that is that is a uh, kind of that fits into this theme of holiness. Because as we go across the scriptures, we're going to see that there is a a symmetry, a structuredness to places that are holy. When we get to the holy of holies, we'll see it's a perfect cube. It's ten by ten by ten cubits. When we get to the New Jerusalem, we'll see it's also a perfect cube. That's significant. Uh, when we talk about the tabernacle and temple, we'll see God has very specific designs for how it's supposed to work. It is highly structured, and that is an element of its holiness. It is, it is set apart, and its structure shows us that. Now, we shouldn't make too much of this. I'm just trying to highlight this theme because we're going to see it as we go through the scriptures. It's, it's not prescriptive, right? It's not like, you know, if your house is a cube, it's much holier than those godless A-frames, or whatever, uh, but it, it, is, it is something that we will see. As holy places are highly structured, there's a symmetry to them because God has set them apart as holy. So God, he makes this world, this special holy place called Eden, and Eden is this holy place where the holy God walks with his holy people, and things are great. And then in Genesis 3, sin... Anti-holiness ruins everything. And again, we see those three elements of holiness just flipped this time. So sin is a moral disobedience. God gave them a command, and they disobeyed the command. Sin is a separation. It's not a separation for God, like holiness is. It's a separation from God. They get cast out of the garden. They can't be there. And there's an angel with a, a flaming sword Barring them from getting back. And sin is just ugly. 
Adam and Eve, they, they realize their nakedness and they have to cover up. They're ashamed. Sin is the opposite of beauty. It's, it's hideous. And they, they have this sense that they, it needs to be covered. So the holy people are corrupted and so is the holy place. And with that, all of creation falls into ruin. And so we have a problem. God is infinitely holy and mankind is hideously sinful and the two cannot be together. God should annihilate, his, his holiness should annihilate the sinful. And yet the rest of the whole Bible is this stunning story of this holy God moving towards his unholy people and working to make them holy again. The story of the Bible is the story of, unholy, of holiness rather invading the unholy. But because holiness and sinfulness cannot coexist, there's very, very specific rules about how this can work. And we see that across the Old Testament. So there are rules for the holy space and for the holy people. That, that make them, that separate them from everything else. So the first glimpse we get of this is Exodus 3. We'll, we'll start here with the holy space. So Moses, he climbs the mountain. Remember, he sees the burning bush. And God speaks to him and says, Take off your sandals, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. There was no holy ground. Right, Because the whole creation had fallen into sin and God is invading and saying, we're making holy ground and we're starting right here. So why does God tell Moses to remove his sandals? Uh, obviously sandals aren't sinful. Uh, and being barefoot's not you know, morally preferential or anything like that. Uh, but the point is this place is different. You can't just wear your common Sandals here, Moses. This is a special set-apart place. This place is holy. There are rules here to protect the unholy from the holy. That's our first glimpse of, of holy space. And then as the story moves forward, things get a lot more specific. So God, he makes this amazing promise to dwell with his people. He's going to plant his flag down. He's going to make a holy place. But it's, it's very, very limited. I mean, the whole Old Testament, it's almost frustrating. There's all these fences around holiness. So uh, th at the biggest level, God chooses a land for his people to dwell in. Israel was is called the Holy Land. And then at the next level in, Jerusalem within Israel was called the Holy City. And then at the next level down, the temple is the Holy Place. And actually, even within the temple, there's these like these this telescoping holiness, these, these fences around the inner sanctum. So the outer court is for everyone. Gentiles and Jews can be there. Uh, sorry, on the next page there, I've got a, a chart for you if you want to look at what the temple and the tabernacle uh, looked like. The outer court, Gentiles and Jews can be there. The inner court, Jews only, and only if they're ceremonially clean. We'll talk about the, those laws in just a minute. But not all Jews could be there. They had to be ritualistically cleansed to be in the inner court. And then there's the holy place, which is only for the priests. And then there's the most holy place, which is only for the high priest. And that's only once a year. And that is where the Ark of the Covenant with the two cherubim with their wings stretched over the mercy seat. That is where the Ark of the Covenant, God's dwelling place among his people, is set Jared mentioned last week that according to tradition, when the high priest went in there once a year, 
They would uh, put bells on him so they could hear uh, if he fell over and died. And they would tie a rope around his leg before he went in so they could drag him out because it's not safe to be in the presence of the holy. He's the high priest. He's only doing this once a year. He's got to kill these bulls and do all this stuff before he goes in. But it's still not safe. He needs to go in and we're going to tie a leg or tie a rope around his leg so we can drag him out if necessary. And the reason for that, I have Exodus 40, 1 Kings 8 here for you. Exodus 40 is about the tabernacle. 1 Kings 8 is about the temple. But the point is the same. The reason for that is the glory of the Lord has descended there. The holy of holies, the most holy place is where the ark of God dwells and it is God's visible dwelling place among his people. And I've, I've put there for you on my diagram that the most holy place, the holy of holies, is a 10 by 10 by 10 cubit room. A cubit's about a foot and a half. Uh, I, obviously, I couldn't do this in 3D. We don't have the technology or copier. Uh, can't quite do that yet, but, you know, maybe next year. Um, but, yeah, this also goes up 10 feet, the Holy of Holies. It's a perfect cube, and that is a symbol. It communicates its holiness. Everything is centered around this perfectly holy, perfectly structured place where God dwells. So it's kind of like, I think of it like, uh, you know, those Russian dolls? You guys know what I'm talking about, those nesting Russian dolls? That's kind of what it's like, that God is in the most inner spot and there's all these walls around him to protect the unholy people from the holy God who's dwelling with them, which is an act of sheer grace. But they can't, they can't, there has to be these walls between them to protect the sinful, unholy people because God is radiating out holiness. And the closer you get, the more danger you're in. And just as an aside, it's, I think it's a, a profound message we fail to realize in our own society today. We kind of have this maybe just common Western, maybe just Bible Belt uh, kind of assumption that God is this grandfather you can just come to and ask for things and talk to. Uh, and uh, make no mistake, in Christ we can, with boldness, approach the throne of grace. We'll talk about that. But we must, we must never take that for granted and we must never lose our awe at how absolutely stunning that is. I mean, you read the Old Testament, you read about the Holy of Holies and all the rules, not just for that, but for everything around it, and you're like, who can, who can dwell with this holy God? Who can be near him? And then you get to the New Testament, and you're just like, wait a second, I can approach him with boldness? Again, well, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but we cannot lose our, our sight of this, the holiness of God, which should make us completely separate for all eternity. So we've talked about the holy space that God creates, but he also calls a holy people. And those aren't two separate things. They're always related, and actually at the end they will become one. But the holy people, they're called to live in a holy land. It starts with Abraham. God says, walk before me, be blameless, be holy, and I'll give you this land of Canaan, the holy land. Later, God saves Israel out of Egypt, and he commands them in Leviticus 19, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then he gives them a bunch of commands. He tells them what holy living looks like. Uh, but, but again, if you've, if you've come to Leviticus in your Bible reading plans, you probably get confused around that point. Because there's a lot of, let's just say what it is, weird laws. There's a lot of things that 
I mean, you're just like, what's, what's going on? You read about clean and unclean. I'm not quite sure what to do with this, okay? Uh, is, it, is it sinful to eat fish without fins? They're not supposed to do that. Is that should I not do that? Is it sinful? Is it, is it wrong, morally wrong to touch a dead animal? I'm gonna, I can't go hunting anymore? You know, like, what, what's going on here? Well, there's really two functions to those cleanliness laws that we find uh, in, the, in the first five books of the Bible, especially in Leviticus. The first function is they, they do mark Israel as different. It's their, their holiness, part of their holiness is the fact that they're just different from the nations around them. They have a different diet. They have different worship practices. They're set apart. But secondly, the, the cleanliness laws, they also serve as a metaphor for how sin and holiness works. So if you have a bodily disease or after childbirth or you touch a dead body, you are ritually impure according to the cleanliness laws. That's a hard word to say, cleanliness laws. So you're not allowed to participate in the religious life of Israel. And it's, it's teaching you something that this is what sin does. Not that those things are sinful, but this is what sin does. So not all those laws are moral. Obviously, those that, the closer they are to things like pagan worship practices, uh, are yeah, there is a moral element there. But those laws are God's teaching tool to help Old Testament Israel understand how sinfulness and holiness works. I have a quote here from uh, one of my seminary professors, Dr. Uh, K. Lawson Younger. He says, the laws of clean and unclean were physically oriented laws which pedagogically taught the Israelites concerning the spiritual world. So God is teaching his people to feel about sin, the spiritual realm, as they are accustomed to feeling about dishonorable and uncomfortable exclusion from the ritual service. So these laws are meant to teach Israel things. They teach Israel things like sin is unavoidable and contagious. I mean, you, you, you read the cleanliness laws and you're like, did everyone ever get to go to worship? I mean, it's just crazy. All the things that they have to do to make sure you didn't touch a dead body. Have you had a baby recently? Like all, all these things that bar you from worshiping the Lord in the holy place. It, it just feels like, yeah, it's everywhere. And God's point is, yeah, sin is everywhere. There are, you're constantly doing things, encountering things that should separate you from worshiping me. So yeah, sin separates them from worshiping God. You, you can't participate in the religious practices if you're unclean, just like what sin does. And it also teaches them sin must be cleansed. So you can't just say, okay, yeah, touch something unclean, whatever. No, no, it needs to be dealt with. You can't just leave it there. It has to be cleansed. Sin has to be addressed. It's a real problem, like being unclean. It's teaching them that. So you might think of these, these laws, these cleanliness laws, uh, in some ways it functions like parenting. So not, not everything I tell my kids to do is a moral decision. Not everything I command of them is, you know, this is the right thing to do. This is the wrong thing to do. Some things might just help them understand how we work as a family. This is what the Nancurvis family does. This is how we behave. These are these kind of things. Some might, some of the things I teach them might prepare them to learn bigger moral lessons when they get older and can understand some of these 
things, kids need to know that you know, even when they don't do something inherently wrong, uh, or not they need to know this, but even when they don't do something inherently wrong, it still may be an opportunity to teach them about how right and wrong, how morality works in the world. And that's how the cleanliness laws worked for Israel. It's teaching them how sin and holiness works. So, God, he, he chose Israel to be his special holy people. He put them among the nations, a special holy place, and he dwelt among them in the holy of holies. But there was still a huge problem. The problem was not dealt with yet. Israel was unable to be holy and they could not fully dwell in the presence of God. We see this throughout the Old Testament. I'll just give you uh, probably one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament that, that really illustrates this from 1 Samuel 5 and 6. So here's what happened. is The Philistines defeat Israel in battle and they capture the Ark of the Lord. Big deal. Okay, they capture the Ark of the Lord and they, they take it to their temple of their God, Dagon. And there's like, this is great. Now we've got Yahweh and we've got Dagon. And they're both going to be on our side now because they're both in our temple. Perfect. And then the next morning they wake up and Dagon has fallen forward on his face. His head is cut off and his arms are cut off. And the Ark of the Lord is just there. They're like, this is, this is weird. And then over time, the Philistines start getting tumors and dying. And they're like, this isn't good. The ark is not good for us. Let's send it to that city down the road. And they do that. And the people there start getting tumors and start dying. They're like, here's the problem. We'll try one more city. They're not taking the hint. And those people start dying. So literally what they do is they put the ark of the Lord on a cart, hitch it to some cows, and just point it in the direction of Israel. And they're like, hopefully the cows know the way. Because we don't want to deal with this anymore. And then the ark gets into Israel... And 70 of the Israelites in the town uh, where it is, uh, I can't remember what it's called, Beth Shemesh maybe? Anyway, but 70 of the people there see the ark of the Lord, they look at it and die. And then the, there's this question that they ask. 1 Samuel 6.20 Who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. Who indeed? And the answer is no one. The Philistines couldn't. And then it gets to Israel and the Israelites couldn't. They couldn't look at the ark of the Lord. So even among God's people, God's presence is destructive. Because he's holy and they're unholy. We see this again the next time the ark moves with Uzzah. Famous story where Uzzah just touches the ark. because It looks like it might fall. The oxen are stumbling. And God strikes him dead because... The unholy cannot touch the holy. Unholy man cannot stand before this holy God. That's the witness of the whole Old Testament. And then we get to the prophets and something absolutely amazing happens. They promise, God they promises, they promise that God himself will deal with this problem such that holiness itself will become universal. Everything Everywhere will become holy. So look at Zechariah chapter 14. This is a cool passage. On that day, talking about the day of the Lord. We'll talk about that a few weeks ago here in tech if you want to listen on what that means. But on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. 
And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. This is unbelievable. A universal holiness that goes everywhere down to the bells on the horses' bridles and the pots in Judah. That's ridiculous. How could everything, how could the pots and the horses be holy? Somehow God will make a holy people in a holy place. He will make it happen. And this promise is, is traced throughout the prophets. Every prophet kind of has their own focus of, of God making this holy space and holy people. The most robust of, of the promises about a, a holy space come from the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel is an underappreciated book. It is amazing. I'll just give you a quick glimpse of it. In Ezekiel chapter 10, when he describes the glory of the Lord in the temple, it kind of works through this progression where the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. So God's people are, are going into exile. They've sinned. They've been disobedient. And Ezekiel has this vision of the glory of the Lord, which, remember, descended upon the temple when Solomon built it. The glory of the Lord getting further and further. It goes to the threshold of the temple, then it goes outside, and finally it leaves and it goes out east. The glory of the Lord has left the temple because of God's people's sin. And even, this is important, even when Nehemiah rebuilds the temple after the exile, it never says the glory of the Lord returns to it. It never says it came back. But, at the very end of the book of Ezekiel, the prophet promises something coming. He looks ahead and he sees this glorious city with a new temple. And the city itself is defined by just this unbelievable promise. The very last words in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 48, 35, the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. There. That's the story of the book of Ezekiel. God's presence is taken from his people because of their sin. And yet somehow there will be this city where God and his people live together. A perfectly holy space and the Lord is there. And then Isaiah in his book connects this promise of the holy place to the holy people. I won't read this whole quote but it talks about this beautiful amazing land and it says, verse 8, a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. Verse 9, the redeemed shall walk there. So Isaiah sees this promise that God's people will be redeemed. He will make them his own and he will make them walk on the way of holiness. And then we come to the New Testament and we find that that is the work of the Son of God, Jesus. So remember in Ezekiel, we saw the glory of the Lord leaving the temple in Ezekiel 10 and Nehemiah never records it coming back when the temple is rebuilt. And then you come to John chapter 1 verse 14 and it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. That word there for dwelt is literally just the word tabernacled. That should 
reminds you of something. And remember, in, when, the, when the tabernacle and when the temple are built, it says, what happened? The glory of the Lord came down. And here, what do they see when they see Jesus? They see his glory. So, so God has come to dwell among his people. Jesus is the new temple, God dwelling among his people. Matthew, similarly, I won't read this passage, but he describes Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit. He gives his name as Emmanuel, which means God with us. Those fences, those barriers that separated from the, ho- the holy from the unholy are coming down. So actually, instead of the cleanliness laws, where if you touch a dead body or, or someone bleeding, or you become unclean, in Jesus' life, we see the complete opposite. So in in Luke chapter 8, a bleeding woman touches Jesus and he doesn't become unclean, she becomes clean. She is cleansed. His holiness is contagious. Whereas sin and uncleanness were contagious, now Jesus' holiness is contagious. He imparts it to his people and he doesn't stop there. He touches dead bodies and they wake up. He touches lepers and they become clean. His holiness is like the, the best kind of Disease, that's the wrong word, but like you want exposure, you want it to come upon you because Jesus is holiness incarnate. It radiates out from him, not for destruction, but for healing. That's what Jesus does. And then ultimately, to fully and finally, not finally, but to fully, to communicate his holiness the holiness of the thrice holy God, holy, 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 to this unholy people, Jesus goes to the cross where the Holy One is made and treated as unholy. At the cross, we see the the Holy Son of God, the morally perfect one, treated like a sinner. At the cross, we see the Holy Son of God who should be set apart and honored, treated like a common criminal, hung up on a Roman cross, And we see the praiseworthy beauty of Jesus exchanged for hideousness. The hideousness of sin. His face was so disfigured, it was beyond human recognition. The cross is where sin is dealt with, but only by treating the Holy One as unholy. And when that happens... The barrier between the holy God and the unholy people is torn in two. Matthew chapter 27. This is as Jesus dies, he cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. That curtain stood as the barrier between the holy of holies and the rest of the world, and it is ripped in two. And it's interesting, it says from top to bottom. Why does Matthew say that? Why include that little detail? Well, if we ripped it, we'd have to, we're down here, we'd have to rip it from bottom to top. But if God is ripping it, if God is breaking down the barrier, he rips it from top to bottom. And then there's a new holy place. John chapter 20. This is the tomb of the resurrection. It says, Mary stood outside the tomb 
And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. Listen to this. One at the head, one at the feet. Why include that detail? Why tell us where the two angels are sitting, one at the head, one at the feet? If you look at Exodus 25, 19, that's exactly what we find in the Holy of Holies with the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant there. There's two cherubim, one at either end, with their wings stretching over. And that is the most holy place. And here is the new most holy place, the tomb of the resurrection, where the barrier between the holy God and the unholy people has been removed. And then from there, we find that those who put their faith in this risen holy king become his holy people, the church. What did Jesus come to do? Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. See the beauty there? Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. There's a lot we could say about the holiness we live out and are called to as God's people today, but just for the purposes of organization, we're going to talk about kind of three areas, three areas in which God imparts his, his holiness, or three ways to think about it, I should say. For the church, for Christians, that is, holiness is a present reality. It is a status. To be in Christ is to be holy. Do you know what the, the most common word in the New Testament to describe Christians is? It's not Christian. It's not believer. It's not sinner. The most common word in the New Testament to identify Christians is the word saint. Paul starts most of his letters this way. He says, to the saints in, you know, Philippi, Colossae, wherever. And and maybe that conjures up, I don't know, Roman Catholic ideas for you. Saints are, you know, there's patron saints of all these kind of things. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, popular Catholicism has really stolen the word saint away from its, its biblical meaning. The word saint just means holy one. That's what it means. It means holy one. And that is how Paul and other writers frequently identify the people of God. They are holy ones. They have been made holy. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay. So uncleanness, sinfulness won't inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. Literally, the same word is holy there. You were holified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. God makes his people holy in Christ. It is a present reality. We are holy. But that's not the whole story. We are also commanded to be holy, to live holy lives. Now, to be clear, you know, it doesn't mean we start with 
you know, God making us holy and then we're kind of left to our own abilities from there. We've got to work to become holy. No, no, no. It's, it's something we live out because God has created this, this objective reality where we are holy in Christ and in our own lives now. We live out that holiness. We, uh, in the words of Philippians 2, we work out what God works in. So God makes us holy, he declares us holy, and he makes us holy-er. Now don't miss this. This is important. Hebrews 12 is very clear. There is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's a sobering reality. Because obviously we have a holy status, but he's saying there's a holiness, a holy way of life is what he's describing there without which no one will see the Lord. This is very serious because there's an, there's an unfortunate, maybe again, Bible Belt assumption, easy believism kind of assumption that you pray a prayer, you give your life to Jesus, and then you just carry on living your life. And you've got the fire insurance, you're set, you're not going to hell, great. Is personal holiness a necessary component of salvation? The answer is yes. Is personal holiness a necessary component of salvation? Yes. Now I need to be clear. I'm not saying you make yourself holier and that's what saves you. No, no, no. I'm saying if you have really been objectively in Christ made holy, that will necessarily create the fruit of holiness in your life. Not overnight, not in huge dramatic ways, but it's there. So if you were here last week, uh, I talked, I preached on the parable of the sower, and that's one of the points we saw there, that, that personal holiness is the fruit of the good soil. It's not what makes the soil good, but it is a fruit. As I've heard Kevin DeYoung say, good works are not the, the root of salvation, but they are the fruit. They're not the root but they are the fruit. They're necessary in the sense that they prove that root has really taken root. I'm struggling with language. I don't know agriculture. If you want a book on that, Kevin DeYoung's uh, The Whole and Our Holiness is all about that. It's, it's very good. It's in the recommendations at the end of your, your handout. Um, but part of that then, thirdly and finally, holiness is a reality. It's a command. We need to take it seriously. But it's also a process. We've already kind of said that, but it is a process. We become Holier, the theological term we use for that is sanctification. So justification describes our objective status. In the eyes of Christ, we are right now, or in the eyes of God, in Christ, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. Glorification is the last element where we experience our holiness in complete freedom from sin's presence. But in between those two is sanctification which is living in this world, being molded into the image of Christ. And unlike the other two, it's a process. Justification, God snaps his fingers and declares you holy. Glorification, God will snap his fingers and you will be glorified for all eternity. Sanctification, God slowly, patiently works to mold you into the image of his son. And we see all three elements are, are part of that. I won't read all these passages, but there's a, we become holier, we become more morally pure, we live out godliness in our lives. We are separated from the world, so we're, we're born as citizens of this world. 
But like Abraham and the fathers before us, we realize we're strangers and exiles on the earth. And so we become more separate as we grow in holiness, as we live of citizens of the kingdom to come. And then finally, there's this element of, of praiseworthy beauty. And that's just what it means to look more like Jesus. Because Jesus is the highest, the, most, the greatest, the most beautiful. And to be transformed into his image in godliness, there is an element of, of beauty to that. Now, that's a process. But one day that process will end. God, again, will snap his fingers. The trumpets will sound. Jesus will crack the sky. And we will see our king. And I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Because in light of everything we've seen about holiness, this doesn't make any sense. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Remember the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6. They had to cover their faces and their feet from the majestic holiness of God. Isaiah said, woe is me, because he was a sinner. But even the seraphim, these burning ones, are covering their faces and their feet from God's infinite holiness. And here, somehow in Christ, we will see the holy, holy, holy God face to face. How could that be? Well, this is where we find the intersection of the promise of a holy people and a holy place. We find the answer in Revelation chapter 21. It's a long passage. I'm going to read it, though, because it's amazing. Then hopefully we'll have a few times for questions. We're almost done here. Then came, this is John describing his vision. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had great high walls with 12 gates. At the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. You hear the symmetry here. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. On them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length, the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, listen to this, this is bizarre, its length and width and height are equal. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I want you to notice two things there. First, as I highlight at the end, This city has cubic dimensions, which doesn't really make sense for a city to have cubic dimensions. Its length and width and height are equal. Obviously, there's a, we see the structure, remember the structure, perfect, holy. But there's only one other cubic space in the entire Bible, and that's the holy of holies. Where God dwells among his people, which leads us to the second staggering thing, the new Jerusalem is a city, right? That's what it says in verse 10. He showed me the holy city. But what is the angel really showing John? 
With all these twelves, twelve names, twelve tribes, twelve apostles, twelves, we know that's the sign of God's people, right? And then look at the very top, verse 9. What does the angel say he will show John? I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. This is the church. The new Jerusalem is both a place and a people. It is where God so dwells in his people that they reflect his own holiness. He fills them with his own majestic holiness for all eternity where we in Christ are the holy of holies. God is doing that, church. That is where he is bringing us. That is our hope in a world where we constantly feel our unholiness, where we wrestle with sin, where we're given to joining the crowd and not standing apart, where we feel the ugliness of our own rebellion. One day, God's holiness will so fill us, he will make us his dwelling place forever and ever. We said at the beginning, this is a story about the infinite Holiness of God, the terrible sinfulness of man, the unbelievable hope of unity. Well, that is what is coming. Believe it, church. We will spend eternity united to our holy God. Let's pray. Father, it's, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Think of what you are doing, what you have promised to do in Christ, that you would call wretched, sinful people like us. And you would not just call us sons and daughters, which is wonderful. You would not just make us righteous, which is staggering, but you yourself would dwell in us forever. Fix our eyes on that day. Fill us with hope and joy in Christ, we pray. Amen.